Well, let me just begin by saying that I'm going to say absolutely nothing about business. Um, I don't even have a briefcase, so no. Uh, I am going to talk a little bit about uh, how the Lord brought me to be in uh, journalism and broadcasting. And um, first of all, though, I, I do want to say that I would be a better student body president. And I think you should vote for me. And um, Really, I don't attend classes here. I know nothing about the school, but I'm interested in working with the administration because they seem fairly nice. You know, they even um, gave me an honorarium. I mean, you know, so <laughs> so I had to say that. But uh, but we're five minutes late, so I'll I'll get on to my topic. Um, really, it is it is good being here with you this morning. It's a pleasure for me to be here. Um, I met Doug in Jerusalem, and uh, surprisingly, after hearing me speak, he actually invited me to come here and speak to you this morning. So I guess that's a good sign. And then he's read my book. That's two things. Um, I'm going to tell you first a little bit about myself so you'll have some idea how I got to be in Israel. I was raised Roman Catholic. Were some of you raised Catholics? A few of you here. And uh, by the grace of God, I got out of that. Um, I have a lot of respect for uh, certain Catholic things, but... Uh, one thing I didn't really learn was the Bible. Didn't learn anything about it at all, frankly. Didn't even own one. Wasn't told that I could read it. In fact, I was told that I shouldn't read it. That was the priest's job. And uh, during high school years, I turned away from God entirely. And I think as a child, I did have a, at least a somewhat sincere faith. And got into drugs and rebellion and the whole scene. Um, ended up uh, in close cahoots with a, a gal that was deeply into the occult. Actually, she was here with Charles Manson, the occult fellow in the area that did a lot of damage. And uh, I thought that it was all sort of a joke. She would do tarot card readings and different things like that. And to me, it, it was just entertainment because I didn't believe that the spirit world existed. If you couldn't... Uh, tear it up and tape it back together, then to my mind it didn't exist. And um, one of the times that she was doing one of these uh, occult readings, I started to see uh, something, and frankly I know now that it was a demonic power at work. And shortly thereafter, in uh, late 1973, a demon actually appeared to me and tried to persuade me to worship it. And uh, I didn't do that. By the grace of God, I found the Lord. My brother had become a Christian about a half year before, and he had just before that time given me a Bible, and um, I said no to this being and yes to the Lord. But God even used that because it uh, brought me to the point where I could not ignore the reality of the spirit world, and uh, that was a good thing. It took me a while to get straightened out to the point where I was really walking with the Lord, just before that time was the 1973 Arab-Israeli War. When I heard the news on the radio of the outbreak of that war, I started weeping very, very strongly. And that shocked me because I knew nothing about the Middle East. I didn't care a whit for the peoples over there, the Jews or the Arabs. didn't interest me at all. But here I was weeping deeply over this thing. And little did I know that the next time war would break out in the Middle East, um, nine years later, 
I would be in the middle of it. There's no way I could have known that. But I believe that God, even at that moment, was drawing me to himself and that it was he that was weeping for the peoples over there. So um, shortly after that, I became a believer and um, I went to Bible college in Spokane, Washington, a school connected to Multnomah. And uh, while I was there, I heard a, a missionary from uh, Transworld Radio. Have some of you heard of that, the overseas missionary operation? And he spoke to me and the others about overseas missionary radio, and that captured something in me. I enjoyed broadcasting from just uh, the little I knew of it, and I was thinking of that as a career. So I asked him, what do I have to do to get into this? He said, go to broadcasting school, learn something about it, and then come to us, and we'll talk about it. So I did that, but instead of going off to the missions field like I hoped, I ended up in my hometown radio station, which was about the boringest place on earth, a little town in North Idaho, and reporting on city council meetings and other exciting, thrilling things. And um, I was bored to tears. All the while, I was reading my scriptures, and my hunger and desire to go to the Middle East was increasing all the time. I just wanted to go and actually see the places where Jesus had had been and where the prophets had been, experience it firsthand. And then in 1978, instead of going to the Promised Land, I came to California. Well, there's some similarities. Uh, the climate's, climate's similar. Uh, that's about it. But um, I, I actually went to, uh, to Berkeley, or as we called it, Berserkley, and I worked for a group called Spiritual Counterfeits Project, which did research into the cults. I figured that if God was kind enough to save me out of a cult, uh, I would spend some of my time helping others who were in a similar situation to get out of it. And while there, I started attending meetings in San Francisco at Jews for Jesus headquarters. And it just about burst me wide open because they would sing Hebrew songs and they would um, talk about the, the Jewish feast days, talk about the land of Israel, show slides and these sorts of things. And I, I could hardly stand it. I wanted so bad to go there. And frankly, I also wanted to get out of, of uh, Berkeley. It was uh, pretty crazy there. We had... Uh, um, Jim Jones uh, and his, uh, quote, church. Some of you remember that. Uh, happened while I was there. And uh, the place that we had our office, there was constantly marches going up and down the streets. We'd have the, uh, the gay, lesbian, Maoists come down, and then we'd have the, um, the uh, you know, reform communists from Romania come up, and then the, you know, the Islamic students would come down against the Shah, and then the, the pro-Shah people would come up, and uh, it was just too much. I, I mean, you, you, you have to be careful how you even drive in Berkeley. I was taking home a, a fellow worker uh, a, after uh, one of our days at work, turned the corner, and we noticed the traffic was moving slowly. And uh, then she said to me, hey, there's uh, people on the sides of the road, and they have signs. And we started to look at it, and we were the last car in a gay rights parade. So uh, <laughs> we... Uh, we felt a little out of place because, you know, here's this, um, you know, man and woman in a car. I mean, it was really weird. So uh, we, we had to turn the corner as soon as we could and, and go onto another street, lest we give them any ideas, I guess. So anyway, it was, uh, it was fun, but uh, good to get back to the Pacific Northwest. And there I worked at another radio station, this time for Moody Radio. It's that, uh, that was the job that uh, introduced me to John MacArthur, because even then he had a radio program on the station. And I enjoyed and learned a lot during that year, enjoyed the teachings and the things. 
but I just was bored. I wanted to go to the Holy Land so much. And in 1980, an opportunity to do that came up. A group called Project Kibbutz was sending teams of young Christians over to live on Israeli farm settlements for a year at a time. And it sounded like a, a real good way to see the Holy Land because they gave us 21 days free touring throughout the country. And we got a chance to live with the people instead of just touring to actually experience what they were experiencing, the lives that they had. Well, I went there in the fall of 1980, and after an orientation program, we were given a choice of going to two different kibbutz. One was in the south in the Negev Desert, and one was right on the border with Lebanon. And we were warned that the one in the north was often shelled by the PLO. Well, that appealed to me because, as I said, I was bored, and I'm a journalist. So off I went to the northern kibbutz, and sure enough, within about a month, bombs started falling. They didn't tell us that the Israelis had their main gun emplacement right next to the kibbutz. So the PLO was always trying to hit it, and sometimes they hit our kibbutz. And then the Israelis would shell back, which sounded at least as bad as the incoming missiles. So that, that was an experience. But the Lord taught me something very valuable at that time that has remained with me. And it's uh, been a vital lesson because I've had other uh, opportunities to be killed, if I can put it that way. Um, several, as a matter of fact. Uh, I was uh, going to the kibbutz dining room to pick up food for all of my team members who were down in the bomb shelter, and each of us took turns going to the central kitchen and doing that. And a bomb started falling all around us. And everybody, all the Israelis, started running. And they were running, you know, to their homes to get their children to, to uh, their shelters, whatever. And I was just running because everyone was running. Bombs are falling, you know, panic. And that's what I was doing. And suddenly the Lord stopped me, and I really believe it was him, and said to me, son, where are you going? You know, and I had no answer. And I felt his still voice saying, be still and know that I am God. If I've called you to this place, I'll take care of you. And you're not going to be any safer running over there than you are standing still right here. And that's been a valuable lesson to me. And um, I've mentioned in the book another incident a year later when I was on a bus. And uh, suddenly the PLO started using this new rocket launcher they'd just gotten from North Korea. And it could launch 40 rockets at a time. And these rockets were literally raining down on this little town that I was in. And uh, the bus driver turned to the few of us in the bus and said, would you like to be let out in front of where you're going instead of at the bus stops? That was a nice suggestion. So we'd be closer to our shelters. And we took him up on that. So he stopped in front of the place that I needed to get uh, to go off on. And uh, I got out, got my luggage out. Suddenly we heard an explosion and looked up. And in the distance, maybe two, three hundred feet, there, a bomb had just landed in the road, and you could see the dust coming up, and you could see the leaves coming off of the trees that it had just gone through. And if we had continued, that's about where we would have been when this bomb came. So it was another reminder from the Lord that, you know, your safety is in me, and where I want you is where uh, you need to be. And um, uh, I encourage you as you go out uh, into the world after this, and especially as you get on the freeways here, which is the most uh, dangerous thing I've ever done in my life, <laughs> but um, to, to trust in the Lord and know that if he's called you to be on that freeway or whatever, that, uh, that he'll protect you wherever he takes you. Um, while I was on the kibbutz, the head of a nearby radio station called The Voice of Hope 
approached me. He said, I've heard you worked in radio and you're a Christian. I said, yes. He said, I want you to come and work in South Lebanon. Now, to me, that was the most idiotic idea I had ever heard. This radio station he was talking about was the direct target of PLO shells all the time. And I knew that. And I also knew that the station featured a weird combination of Christian and country music. And it just didn't appeal to me at all to go there and risk my life for Waylon Jennings or something, you know. So I really wasn't for it. But the Lord uh, made it clear to me. I got hepatitis from drinking the water of the Jordan River, and I was quite sick. And during that time in prayer, he made it clear to me that he wanted me to be in Lebanon that following year. And sure enough, I did go to that radio station. As I was crossing the border, the station manager looked me in the face and said, Do you have life insurance? I said, no. He said, just as well, because nobody's going to honor it here. And uh, he was right. It's a, it's a crazy place. And in fact, my first view of the station as we drove up was uh, I, I noticed that one of the walls was missing. And he said, well, that's where the shells hit, and we just haven't rebuilt it because they'll just destroy it again, you know. So we have the studios on the other side of the building, and they usually don't hit there. So that was encouraging. And... Um, he also mentioned that our, our cars were often the exact targets of PLO shells because we were the only ones crazy enough to be out on the roads. So that also was encouraging. I had lots of opportunities during that time to put into practice what I just told you about, the Lord's um, word to me, to trust him in all circumstances. And he kept me through many, many perilous times, and I thank him and praise him for it. In 1984... I uh, did what I had wanted to originally do when I went to Israel. I moved to Jerusalem to study some Hebrew. I'm still studying Hebrew eight years later, or seven years later. It's not an easy language to learn. And I thought I was leaving the fire and going to a much nicer, calmer, peaceful place. My second day there, there was a major terror attack in downtown Jerusalem, and these, these terrorists came out of a sporting goods store and opened fire and, and killed some people and wounded a bunch of people. So I quickly realized that, aha, here too I'm going to need to trust the Lord at all times. And um, it's been good to be in that position through the past 10 years especially. But as I said, even on the freeway, one has to do that. And in fact, I was in Israel for this recent war, uh, not all of it, but the first part of it. And people say to me, is it safe to go there? And uh, I say to them, is it safe to go to New York? Because frankly, the closest call I had in the past three months was when I got into a taxi at Kennedy Airport to go to LaGuardia Airport, and uh, this guy almost hit a bus. So, um, you know, it's, it's where the Lord wants you. I uh, mentioned the Transworld Radio um, missionary that I heard earlier, that I heard in Spokane. The Lord did something in my heart then to go overseas and, and go into missionary radio no way could I have even dreamed in my wildest imagination that he would send me not only overseas, but to the promised land, to Israel, to the Middle East, and that I would be broadcasting the gospel into Israel of all places and into Lebanon and Jordan and Syria, these very troubled countries that are at the center of world attention many times and that are, of course, at the center of our Bible um, and that is just, it's, it would take far too long today, I don't have the time to detail how the Lord took me to that place, it, all, the, all the steps that he took me. But he gave me that vision when I was at Bible college, and he fulfilled it in a remarkable way that I could have never myself stage managed. And I'm saying all that just to say that if today 
God has said anything to you, if you have in your heart a vision, if you have a desire or he's given you a talent and you look at it and you think it's impossible or it's too far or you're, you don't know how you're going to achieve it, it may just be, as in my case, that God actually has something for you that's even beyond that. Something that you wouldn't even dare to think about or dream about, but that he has in his plan. And uh, I think that we usually make the mistake of wanting to plot our lives and plan every step, and we don't allow God to do it. And I just want to encourage you this morning, this is a bit of an aside, but to obey God in all the small steps, because those small steps may be leading to a much larger thing that you don't even see. And if I hadn't obeyed God in some small steps along the way, I wouldn't have ended up over there, and I wouldn't have ended up doing what he had put into my heart a decade earlier, which was being involved in overseas missionary radio. And uh, he brought it about in his strange and mysterious way. That was the last thing, by the way, that was on my mind when I went over to Israel, that I would be fulfilling that earlier uh, calling, that earlier goal. But God had it in his mind, and he ordained all of the steps. And there was, uh, as I mentioned, a time when I had hepatitis in 1981, when I could have stepped off that road. And you know what? Everybody, everybody was telling me to step off that road. My parents, um, all of my teammates in Israel, all of my church members, my pastor, everybody. There was only one voice that was saying, stay on this path. And that, of course, was the Lord. And I knew it. But, you know, I had lots of excuses to do what was the most comfortable thing, which was to come back to the States and get better, as everybody said I should be doing, and not obey his voice. But uh, it's his voice in the end that matters. Now, people can use this as an excuse for doing their own thing, you know, and they don't want to listen to anybody else because God has given them a special word. I'm not talking about that. But if you know that God has told you a certain thing, and you know it, and he keeps saying it to you, you've got to obey that no matter what else um, is being said. People have good intentions sometimes. But the Lord's intention is the best. So um, I moved to Jerusalem and I started working for a news network called IMS News that the Moody Radio Network carries or carried. It went bankrupt. In fact, it went bankrupt while I was over there and I didn't have any money coming in for a while. And I had another opportunity at that point to leave and everyone was saying I should do so. But again, the Lord was saying, stay, I have something else for you. And uh, what he had for me was a job at CBS Radio. I've got to say something about the marketplace, I guess, so I'll bring this in. Um, when the position came open in early 1988 for a reporter in, at CBS, I applied along with about 14 other people. I thought the chances were about zero that I would get it. Why? Because they knew that I was a flaming conservative evangelical. So, um, you know, they, they weren't going to consider me was what I thought. And um, they were a little worried, frankly, and the head of network radio in New York called me on the phone. He said, we've listened to all the tapes, and yours is the best, and we like your writing style, we like your experience, but he said, I'm a little bit concerned about your, your beliefs and whether these will come into your reports. He said, you're not going to mention Armageddon in all your reports, are you? I said, only if it's happening, <laughs> you know. He said, fair enough. <laughs> so... But it is an exciting, exciting, thrilling place to be a journalist. 
because I'm able to report stories that are also stories that I've been reading about beforehand in the scriptures. And uh, one example is the return of the Soviet Jews. I've been expecting that to happen for years. I've read different books, and I know that there are scriptures that say that God will bring back the Jews from the four corners of the earth, and specific scriptures that talk about the north of Israel, which Russia is, due north of Israel. I will say to the north, give them up, send them back. And I've been sitting around, as it were, waiting for this to happen. And now it's happening, and I'm able to report it as a news story. And I can't say in those stories, by the way, folks, this was mentioned in Jeremiah and other prophets, but I know it was. And that's very, very exciting. But, of course, there's a, a negative side to that, and that is that there are some, some negative prophecies also or some uh, prophecies that are not as, as nice to report on. I'll talk about that more in a minute. Um, in 1986 or 87, I've forgotten which, I started lecturing at the Institute of Holy Land Studies in Jerusalem. And it was mostly, some of you have been there, uh, it was mostly to students such as yourselves, often teachers and pastors and others who come for short-term uh, times mostly. And I was talking to them about the Arab-Israeli conflict. And I believe, I'm fully convinced, that this is one conflict in the world that Christians need to at least try to understand. I don't just mean understand what's going to happen in the future, but what has happened and what is happening. Um, Northern Ireland, Southeast Asia, Central America, these are all conflicts of interest. We probably should try to understand them. But the Middle East is much more than all of those because it does indeed touch upon our Bible. It touches upon our faith. It touches upon the return of the Lord. And as you go out into the world, you're going to find a lot of people with a lot of strong opinions on this particular conflict. It is the most emotional, the most powerful conflict in the world at this time. And once again, the Lord has turned the eyes of the world to the Middle East so that people are all forced, as it were, to look at that part of the world. When I became a Christian in 1973, uh, 74, it was the same situation because in the wake of the Yom Kippur War, all of the world was in an uproar because the Arabs had cut off oil to some of the West. There were gas lines here in the United States and elsewhere, and everybody was forced to look at it. I think the Lord has brought us to that point once again where we're all having to look at that part of the region of the world. Why? Because, of course, it does tie in with the prophets, with what the prophecies have to say. It is the spot on earth where Jesus is going to return to, and I'm fully convinced that it's going to happen soon. Anyway, they were always asking me at the Institute to uh, recommend a book, preferably by a Christian, that would spell out this conflict, that would just give the basic background of it, explain who's who, who's the PLO, why are there Palestinian refugees, what is, why, why is this going on? And um, to do it in such a way that the average person could understand it, not just for, um, you know, people who are already interested in the topic and are reading all these intricate things that are out on the market about it. So that inspired me to write this book, and that's what I started doing in early 1989. And Moody Press was going to publish it, and they pulled out after a while because I talk a lot about Islam, because I believe that Islam is the key to understanding the Arab-Israeli conflict. Um, I understand that you had a talk from a Muslim recently, and, and I won't go into that, but I would say that my perspective is probably different than what you heard. I believe that uh, the root of the uh, conflict is Islam. 
the Muslims believe that the Jewish state contradicts their holy book, the Quran. The Quran says, in a nutshell, that Allah has forever cursed the Jewish people, and for that matter, Christians, unless they come to faith in Allah along with uh, the Prophet Muhammad. So if you haven't done that, you're cursed. And if you're cursed, you're not likely to come into the heart of the Muslim world and set up an independent state that has authority over Muslims. But that's what the Jews have done. And you're certainly not going to come into that region and threaten, as they see it, to rebuild an ancient temple to the Jewish God in the, in the very spot where there are holy mosques to Islam. That's the situation in Jerusalem. So that is at the core of this conflict, and I wanted to explain that. And that was the motivating factor in writing this, this book. And uh, Moody pulled out of it because they became afraid that the Muslims were going to come after them and get them if they published it. And uh, Thomas Nelson later uh, picked it up and have published it. And so far, I don't think anybody's been attacked, but we'll see how it goes. The Lord, again, is going to have to be uh, my shield and, and buckler as I go back into the Middle East because this book is going to be sold there. And I know that there's going to be some people that are not excited by what it has to say. In fact, my network, CBS, is probably not going to be too excited, speaking of the marketplace, because um, I do talk about the way the media has covered the Arab-Israeli conflict. I don't believe that it's been fair. I think that there is a spiritual battle, of course, at the heart of this thing. Uh, but I explain the economic realities and the things that are going on there. And in fact, I may well lose my job as a result of it. Uh, I talked to my boss recently. He said he hadn't yet read the book. But when he does, I'll, I'll be waiting to see what his verdict is, whether he thinks that I'm, you know, beyond the pale and they need to get rid of me. But uh, I'll, I'll just tie in the marketplace right here. If God has showed you something and has showed you truth, I'm sure a lot of you know this, you've got to be willing to speak it out no matter what it costs, even if it costs your job or your reputation. Working with CBS has been a prestigious thing, and I think it's helped me in writing this book and that. But if, uh, if that's the cost of speaking the truth, then that's the cost, and I just have to, uh, to go with it. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about, uh, this is the, the nastiest part, so if you want to leave, this is the time. I'm going to talk about uh, the, the recent war and what I expect in the immediate future in the Middle East and in the world. Um, this war was a remarkable thing. I believe that the Lord has gone a long way towards ripping off the veil that has been over the eyes of the Jewish people for all of these centuries. I also believe that God has gone a long ways in bringing the Muslims to a place where they might begin to see that Islam is false. And let me put it this way, Islam, I believe, is the world's largest cult. It's not one of the three great religions. It came along afterwards, it stole something from Judaism, it stole something from Christianity, and it did something that all cults do. It took Jesus, but not the Son of God. It has Christ as Messiah, but he's not the Savior of the world. His blood doesn't atone for the sins of the earth. He just is the Messiah. Well, what does that mean? Well, if you go and look at so many of the cults, that's what they do. They have a Christ who isn't Christ. So I see it as the world's largest cult and the world's fastest growing cult and Islam is the world's 
fastest growing religion and it's America's fastest growing religion as well. Unfortunately, very sadly, but that's the truth. It has enslaved these peoples. And um, I'm hoping and praying that this recent war will help to, to free them to see the gospel. The war lasted 40 days, the actual war, 40 days and 40 nights. It ended on the Jewish festival of Purim. Now, if you're an Israeli, both of those things are very significant. They know, as I'm sure most of you do, that the number 40 is a biblically significant number, a number of completion. And the festival of Purim, as you know from the book of Esther, celebrates the overthrow of the evil Haman over in Persia, who uh, was out to kill Jews, had given this decree, decree that the Jews be killed. And in the same way, this guy to the east, Saddam, had told the world that he was going to kill Jews and in fact was sending these Scud missiles on Israel's largest cities in an attempt to kill Jewish civilians. And he was overthrown, as it were. He, he was uh, finally defeated at the Feast of Purim. This was noticed by the Israelis very, very much. And even more than that, they were forced during this last war to look to God. And I say sadly that they were forced. I wish I could report to you that they were all God-fearing, that they were praying all the time, etc. But that's just not the case. The majority of the people are not all that religious. Um, it's something from the past. They're not all that interested in it. But um, they do have a lot of faith in their military, in their air force and in their army. And frankly, they've got one of the best militaries on this planet. They have to because they're 4 million Jews surrounded by 200 million Arabs and 50 million Iranians surrounded by 250 million people who've been talking for decades about destroying them and have launched a number of wars with that intention. So they have to have an excellent military and they do have. But a poll was taken a few years ago and they asked, who do you trust for the defense of the nation? And 79, 80% said the army, the air force, and something like, I've forgotten exactly, 25, 26% said God. And I have felt for some time that something was going to have to happen to reverse those figures. And frankly, I feared it was going to take a, a large war that would lead to a huge loss of life in Israel, where they would have to see that their military can also fall down, where they would have to lose confidence in that. But I think this war that we just saw has gone a long ways towards that goal with only one Israeli casualty directly from a scud attack. That is incredible what God did. Here was the Prime Minister of Israel who's charged with the defense of his people. He lost his family in the Holocaust. Um, he's a strong man. Here he is having to sit on his hands because of this political equation. Israel can't get involved or it'll upset the coalition and, and the Arabs will leave and on and on and on. Here is the army, one of the best in the world. They, they're at the borders with their guns pointed at who? There's no enemy there. Yet, they're Families are under attack, apartment buildings are being blown up, people are being killed, and they have no enemy to shoot at. Here's the Air Force, undoubtedly one of the best in the world, and these guys sitting in their cockpits, ready to go 24 hours a day, unable to take off. Why? Because they don't have fuel? No, because politically they can't do it. There's this, you know, you'll, you'll get involved and you might hit an American jet and this and that. It was extremely frustrating for all of the folks in Israel but it also forced them to look to some other means of defense or protection. Now, when the Patriots came, that raised a lot of hopes that that would be the answer. 
but immediately it became clear that the Patriots got some scuds and they didn't get some scuds. So that was not the answer. It was a partial answer. There was only one other alternative and that was to look to God and the Israeli people, and I was there, as I said, for the first part of the war, they turned to God in a way that I have never seen in the 10 years I've been there. And Israelis who've lived there all their life tell me they've never seen in all of their lives a turning of the nation to God. The synagogues were full, people were praying Psalm 91 and these other prayers every day and really crying out to God for their protection. And as I said, one Israeli directly killed in over 39 scud attacks. That is, as the Israeli press has called it, that is a miracle. Nothing short of a miracle. Several of the missiles landed very close to um, a groups of people. One in particular landed about 30 feet from a bomb shelter that was full of Israeli families. There was about 200 people inside. And it created a hole, um, I don't know, from here to that, to the end of this uh, partition here, about five feet deep. And if that had hit that bomb shelter, it would have done what the Scuds did when they hit the U.S. forces in Saudi Arabia. It would have killed hundreds. And when I first came back here, people were saying to me, oh, these Scuds aren't real bombs. They're just noisemakers. And, you know, they can't really kill people in that. And I was saying, no, these can kill. And it is miraculous that they haven't up till now, that they've hit uh, nearby and that families have suddenly, and this happened, suddenly moved from the room they were in to another room. And two minutes later, that room and that side of the building was blasted apart. That happened a couple times. This was an act of God, a miracle. And then, of course, when, when the U.S. Uh, forces were hit with the Scud and, and so many were killed, we very sadly, in fact, had it confirmed that these things can kill. So they're using the word miracle, and they do see that God has had a hand in it, and I'm believing that that's going to open their eyes. And with the Arabs, here was Saddam saying, in the name of Allah, I'm doing this. It's a holy war. And here were the Saudis saying, in the name of Allah, we've got to resist you. So here you have Allah's guys on both sides pounding each other on the head. That's got to be confusing to a lot of Muslims. I'm hoping and praying that it will be an opening for them to, to start to question this, this uh, religion that they are part of and that they'll start to open up towards the gospel. That is, I believe, about to happen in the Middle East. But I also believe that dark days are just ahead. Um, I felt before this war broke out in prayer that the Lord was showing me, even a year ago this time in April, that there was going to be a war in the Middle East, that it was going to be um, something that would involve the whole world, and that it was going to be, and this is what counts most for you in this room, it was going to be the beginning of a series of wars and things in the Middle East that would lead to the end, to the Lord's return to me if I'm still with CBS reporting for Armageddon, if I were still here. Um, I believe the days are very, very short. And if I had stood up here two years ago and said, folks, by the end of 1989, communism is going to fail in Eastern Europe. They're going to throw out their communist governments and be free. The, West, the Berlin Wall is going to come down and all these things are going to happen. If you followed the news at all, you would have said to me, that guy's nuts. No evidence of that. What is he talking about? But it happened. And a year ago this time, if I would have stood up here and said, folks, by the end of this year, there's going to be a major war developing in the Middle East. There's going to be over half a million American forces rushed to the region. We're going to see a coalition of nations, and then we're going to see the largest tank battle since World War II and all these things. You would have said the guy is off his rocker. There was absolutely no evidence of such a thing, but it happened. And I believe that we are in the days where things are moving extremely rapidly. 
and that I could stand up here today and say, folks, by Christmas this year, such and such and such, and you would say he's nuts, and we'll see it. I think we're in the time where things are going to continue to churn up in the world, and um, I do feel that, in particular, we can look to our country's economy to uh, go through some serious times. As I've been traveling around, I've, I've been told by people who know about it that seven of the country's ten biggest banks are on the verge of collapse that they're struggling right now to hold on, and that if one or two of them go, probably the rest of them will go, and if they go, others will go, and the U.S. government will not be able to insure everyone's deposit to $10,000 if all the major banks are going, because the government itself, of course, is bankrupt. So I think that we may see something on that field, and I've mentioned that as I've gone around. And also, I think we need to be praying for President Bush, because the one terror revenge attack that the Arab terrorists want to carry out is the death of Bush. They're not interested in taking planes or boats or anything. They're interested in getting Bush. They've said it. I've read it. And I believe they're going to try to do that. But the Lord is in control. But all this just to say that we are, as, as um, my brother shared earlier during the music time, we are in unique and exciting times. Um, if you're only 19 or 20, it's not too exciting to think that we may be right on the edge of the end of the world, I suppose. You've got your lives ahead of you here, but we are on the verge, I'm totally convinced of it, of the Lord's return, of the kingdom of God that mankind has waited for for centuries, that the trees have waited for, that the earth has waited for as well, the revelation of the sons of God when all of creation will be renewed. We're close to the time of the Lord's return. And that is, if there's any good news in all that, that is the good news, in fact, the great news this morning. And what does that mean for us? Well, it means I've got to stop, but um, it means that we have maybe not much time on this earth. Maybe we don't have, maybe you in this audience don't have time to raise families and go out. You're planning your careers and things, many of you. Maybe you do. I don't know. But I suspect that what we're seeing in the Middle East is the beginning of the movement towards the end and that it is going to be fairly rapid. The Lord. The Lord is there, but most of the people in this world still don't know it. And we all hear the message so often to go out and share, and that the time is late. But having just come from the Middle East and seen these wars, I just want to renew that message this morning. We may not have a lot of time, but whatever time we have, we can use it to bring people to a saving knowledge of our Messiah. And, uh, you know, just don't think of these days as preparation for the future. Think of these days as opportunities in the present to bring people to the Lord, to save Christians that are stumbling, to do these sorts of things. It's, it's real what's happening out there. It's exciting. As he said, it's the most exciting time in history to be alive because we're on the verge of the Lord's return. Um, if, you, if you want to know more about the Arab-Israeli conflict, this is my book, a special student rate of $8. Uh, if you don't have that, if you have less, take one and just leave what you can.